Good morning, my friends. How are you? Wow, so good to see you. Thank you for that warm welcome. And I'm always so blessed when Johnny and Mark give me an invitation to come back. Uh, Yes, I was one of the earliest speakers, and I think there were about 12 to 15, and it was a good day. And I tell you what, even back then, it was a class act. Uh, Johnny and Mark always do it first class. But look at this, guys. I mean, is there some kind of momentum going on right now? I think we ought to give them and their team just a great hand for all that's happening. So good, so exciting, and I think just indicative of a lot of the other good stuff that's going on in our church. In fact, just one other little plug uh, today. So I pastored for 35 years, 19 of those years I was a senior pastor, And uh, back a decade or so ago, it was a little bit more well-known. I think Focus on the Family really promoted it a lot. But typically, October is known in some circles as Pastor Appreciation Month. And so I just want to challenge you guys today in some way, whatever way you can, is to show some appreciation to not only Pastor Witt and his, and his wife, Heather, but to all of our pastors, our campus pastors here. We are extremely blessed. The Bible tells us to honor those who labor among us and, and to follow after them. And I just want to tell you, it was a big deal to me as a pastor during that month when some people would go out of their way just to express a little extra appreciation because so much goes on behind the scenes. Pastor Witt makes it look so good. He's such a great communicator. He's so sharp. Heather's just awesome. They get up here. There's a lot that goes on, and I'm going to share with you a little of those things today. So let's just go out of our way, and he's got to be listening to this. Let's just let him feel a tremor in the forest today, shall we? Aren't you excited about our pastor and pastors today? Yes. So, Pastor Witt, if you ever listen to this, I just want to tell you, you got 300 men in the room who are with you today. We're not behind you. We are with you. I'm so excited about what's happening here within our church. So, in any case, guys, I'm a blessed man. I, I've been married to the same gal for 41 years and have lived to tell the tale. And uh, I'm so thankful for her patience. She's the one who really gets all the kudos in, in our story. Um, I'm, a, I'm a dad of five, three sons, three daughters-in-law, twin daughters, six grandkids so far, uh, 40 years plus of, me- of ministry. And the family, my family seems to be the thing that gets admired the most by so many. And I'm thankful for that. I'm very grateful And I do have a lot to be thankful for, but again, I've just got to be honest, we're filled with quirks. We've got a lot of our own uh, dysfunctions, as most families do. And I think the thing that I'm growing even more appreciative as as a dad, as the monarch, as they call me, uh, within my home, is just the fact that we're learning just to kind of own our stuff right now. And as we're all becoming a little bit more emotionally healthy, that uh, we, we realize that we are imperfect people who are called to be a part of this family, and we're doing our best just to lean into it and to work that out. And I think that's the thing that makes me the most proud. All my kids are walking with God, which is every pastor's desire. You don't want to be the stereotype preacher's kids, you know. And uh, I've got my oldest son who is launching a life-giving church in downtown Denver a week from Sunday. Come on, somebody. And... Uh, 
Mother, two sons are romancing their wives someplace in the Caribbean today, which is a good thing to do. We should all be so fortunate. And uh, my daughters, they're always close by. In fact, one of them snuck in today. Rachel's back in the sound booth. She's part of the production team, but she's just faking it. She couldn't stick a- stay away from Daddy today. So thanks, Rachie, for being here today. I've been a past- I was a pastor in three churches over 35 years. I now, as, as Johnny said, I get to do what I love to do, and that's to stand with other men, Uh, mostly church leaders, but other Christian men in the marketplace and church teams. And guys, everybody ought to feel like they're good at something. And I can do a lot of things, but I feel like I'm a really good coach. And the reason I am is not because I'm just the smartest guy in the room or anything like that, but I love people. And, And I'm full of compassion. I'm full of grace. I'm an encourager. I love to help guys strive for what they're called to do, and I'm kind of in that season of contribution right now. I don't have a team anymore, so I'm not really leading in that respect, uh, but I love to come alongside young bucks and help them to build something, especially to build great families along with their churches and their careers. And as Johnny said, I've often been viewed as somebody who's kind of had it all together, and uh, as I said in the, wrote in the bio or admitted to him, some of that was by design. Um, the truth is, is that for the past 44 years, the majority of that time, I've been carrying some baggage that very few people actually knew about. And that was nobody's, uh, nobody's fault except, except my own. And so when Johnny and, and uh, Mark asked if I would do kind of a Kirby unplug today, and not just do the typical PowerPoint, let me teach you time management and, and uh, all that kind of stuff. I said, yeah, that, that, that's, that's what I would do anyway, because it's just really good timing. I've been through a pretty good journey in the last couple of years, and I know that it is just one step uh, in, in the whole journey of life. But I want to share with you guys today some of my story and of my struggles and of my secrets. We've all got those. We've all got a story. We've all got struggles. We've all got secrets, and there shouldn't be anything about any of that that we should be ashamed of, although, as you'll find out, that's been a big part of my life. I've been ashamed of those things for some unknown reason, and yet there will never be any freedom from those things or the false sense of shame that comes along with it without surrendering to Jesus and finding a few trusted friends who will be willing to go along with you. So just just uh, let you know, in case uh, you came out, if you're a first time to men's breakfast, thank you for coming. But if you were looking for a tabloid shocker today, uh, just wondering what's really Kirby been up to, well, I don't know if there's anything quite that's going to make the, uh, the National Enquirer today, but it is another good story of just God's grace and his hope for greater freedom in Christ, and I'm happy to share it with you. I grew up in a small town called Atlantic, Iowa, a town of about 9,000 when I grew up. I grew up on a, a feedlot uh, that my dad managed. We tested feed for a feed company, a small feed company in town. So I had a good childhood. I was the firstborn of uh, four of us kids and had two other brothers and a sister. On December 17, 1975, I was a freshman in uh, college at Iowa State University. And uh, the, the thing that was, first of all, significant about that, it was the last day of, the, of that trimester, and we were going to go home for Christmas break the next day. And I was really excited about it, only two hours away, and I 
called my folks at the end of the day and told them my plans. I'd be heading out in the morning and looking forward to seeing all of them for this long Christmas break. And they said the same thing, can't wait to have you come home. I mean, I was the firstborn and everybody missed me and it was just going to be great. And uh, they said, we're going to Omaha tonight, which is about 60 miles away. We're going to take the kids over there, do some last minute Christmas shopping, which was a big deal. We didn't travel much in those days. It was maybe make that trip once or twice a year. And uh, so we said our goodbyes and said, great, I'll see you, see you tomorrow. About two hours later, the campus police showed up at my door, at my dorm, and they told me that they had a number that evidently there had been an accident or something and they needed for me to call back to this hospital in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And so I did that and I spoke with them and uh, all they told me was, yes, there's been an accident, we think you need to come home. So, well, can I talk to my dad? And they said, well, he's still at the scene of the accident. So I figured it was downtown Council Bluffs. They'd had a fender bender or something like that. And, and yet I asked my roommate if he would take me home and uh, drive my car back. And so we did. We headed back, and I reached the hospital in Council Bluffs about three hours later that night. And I was swarmed when I walked in by all of the medical staff that was on deck at that time, and I found out about the accident. There had been uh, about halfway between my hometown and Omaha, uh, shortly after I'd talked with them, out in a little uh, country highway, a narrow bridge. My car, uh, family's car was heading across it, and there was a semi coming the other way, and he was just a mile from home. But he had stopped just a short while before and been drinking and uh, was drunk. Across the center line, there was no place in that narrow country bridge and hit them head on. And my dad was killed instantly, All the rest of my family was in the hospital in really bad shape. My youngest brother and my sister were badly hurt. They were in intensive care for a long, long time. And it rocked not only my family, as you can imagine, and I could talk quite a bit about what happened that evening and some of the other things that that took place, but for that small town a week before Christmas, it was really a big deal, and, and it rocked the community as well. I spent the next few days... Um, traveling back and forth between the hospital and my hometown 50 miles away, uh, getting preparations made for my dad's funeral. Um, Buried him four days later on December 21st. My mom and one of my brothers were fortunate enough to be able to get out of the hospital and to attend that with me. Christmas was really weird just a couple of days later. Um, We didn't spend Christmas at home. We spent it in the hospital. Nurses made up a nice bed for me in one of the spare bedrooms. They tried to clear out the hospital a lot on Christmas Eve. Spent a lot of nights on the couch there. Opened a gift that was under the Christmas tree a couple of days later that was to Kirby from Dad. It was a uh, V-neck navy blue sweater from J.C. Penney. I kept that thing for quite a few decades. And... uh, so that was, that, was a, that was a rough Christmas. I returned back after several weeks. Um, we, we did what we could to manage the, the things. My mom insisted that I go back to school. Under great protest, I did. I was not mentally prepared or emotionally prepared for it. But fortunately, after a couple of days, not fortunately, but uh, a couple of days after that, my mom had a stroke. She had hit her head real bad in the accident, developed a blood clot, and was completely paralyzed on her right-hand side. So I ended up going back home for the rest of that year till the following fall, 
and uh, had, to, had to have power of attorney for her. I didn't really know what power of attorney was. I didn't know a lot of things that were happening at that time. But I came home to take care of the family as a dutiful son, the firstborn. I was 18 years old. So we moved our family home a few months later because we lived on the farm. That's, uh, that was part of the job. I'd lived there for about 16 years. My little sister finally got out of the hospital. She was very, uh, had, had a really bad broken leg. My mom eventually recovered, and my little brother Bobby, he never did recover. He was hit on the head really bad. He laid in a vegetative comatose state for two and a half years in a nursing home until he finally passed away in June of 78 at 16 years old. There wasn't any counseling back then that we knew about it. If there was, nobody really went to see counselors. We just did the best that we could. We rallied together. We uh, stood in our faith, and we just did our best to become better and not bitter. And I think that we did a pretty good job, but I also think that we fooled ourselves that we had really dealt with this. And it wasn't until a number of years later that I think all of us understood the aftermath that was yet to follow. We've all got experiences like this, guys, and if you haven't had an experience of tragedy, you will have at some point in time in your life. It might not be like this. Yours might be worse. Mine wasn't necessarily the worst. Many have had it, you know, in greater, greater, worse things that have happened, but it was ours. And I can just tell you, in our family right now, when we talk about this, it is always referred to as the accident, capital letters. It was the BC and the AD in our family history. Everything now is either before or after uh, the accident. And life blew up at that point in time. Everything that I had known changed. And I've been taking care of people ever since. And even most of the time at my own expense, which wasn't great, but until recent years, I haven't been all that great about doing self-care. It was all about just taking care of everybody else. And I would try to escape at times from that responsibility. In those first couple of years, I would do so when I'd have a chance. I hate to admit it, but it wasn't in very healthy ways. Uh, that I was doing that, but again, I was just trying to trying to get by, and my responsibility went on steroids at that point in time. Again, the firstborn, we got to take care of things. Uh, my good friend and counselor, Dr. Kevin Neiman, who's good enough to be with us here today, when I shared with him this story, I remember the first time he said, so after that, you decided to be a pastor? And uh, yeah, I don't know what was going on at that time. It just seemed to be the thing that I was supposed to do. If you caught the interview that I did uh, on Instagram this last, last week with Matt Schrader, you heard a little bit about the dark period that I went through about 15 years ago when some of this stuff started to come to the surface, some of these unresolved issues after a couple of decades. And I was going through a lot of pressure pastoring a small church, and it was kind of midlife, you know, that whole guy thing in the 40s. And, and the problem was I was trying to tough it out alone. And so I, I took a big step back then. I saw a counselor for the very first time. You guys have to understand that was a huge thing for me. To see a counselor, I, I could send people to counselors, and I would counsel them. There would be no judgment, no shame, but I couldn't do that. 
to, ad- to do that would admit a weakness, would admit that something is wrong, that I wasn't enough. Of course, all of that was true. I was weak. I couldn't do it alone. But there was a whole bunch of shame that was wrapped up in that. But I did. I took a step because I knew that I couldn't continue to keep going on and doing this to my family in the ways that I was. And I took the first step. It was a, it was a first layer that began to peel back. And I began to deal with some of my trauma of the family accident of losing my dad. And we took another step and I moved forward. So fast forward here to just about a couple of years ago, I could start to feel some of that emotional stuff coming back to the surface. And it reminds me a little bit of where I hear guys who have been in a war and maybe experienced the trauma of war and maybe even physical things where they've been in the, in the heat of battle, they've gotten some shrapnel deep where it didn't make sense to try and dig it out. It was just okay. But over the years, it begins to kind of work back towards the surface. And that's what I was starting to feel like, doggone it, there's just more underneath here. And it came around my 60th birthday. Doggone it, don't you think we can get our crap together about the time we're 60 years old? I mean, that's really what I was thinking. It's just, come on. That's what's going to be on my epitaph of my tombstone. Just come on. You know, just what the, what, what, what the heck was that all about? So I had a few other notable events in uh, starting a couple of years ago. First and foremost was a mountain men experience. I was going to brag about it because I think I was the oldest guy to, to climb the 14er of the mountain men at that point in time. And now we got Slav over here. Thanks a bunch, Slav, for stealing all of that, man. What a beast. What an animal. Come on. I just, I'm not worthy, you know. It's just, jeez. I don't even want to do Crestone, you know. It's just... Uh, But I did Humboldt, and it was a great experience. And the cool thing about it was, um, you know, we're going there, and I was going to drive a stake in the ground. I really did it kind of for selfish reasons. I was going into my seventh decade, and I just thought I had to to do something like, doggone it, I'm not done yet. So, but I had the chance, I I went also with my uh, third son, Jesse, who was co-leading a team. I didn't have the chance to interact with him a lot, but it was pretty special. I remember that day that we would summit and we were walking up there. It was great. And I had a good experience about halfway up what we call the ridge. And it was just this emotional thing of, doggone, I'm not done yet. I'm not old. And it was, it was fantastic. But all that day, really about the only thing outside of getting to the top and whatever God had for me up there, the thing that was really on my mind that day was my son, Jesse. I, I just... I just wanted to share this experience with him. And things have been a little bit strained between he and I uh, over the years, uh, the last couple of years before that, just because of some junk that I was dealing with and it was manifesting in some ways. And we were good, but it just wasn't like what the Andersons normally were. And I hated that. And I was looking forward to this time. And as we're climbing up the summit, Jesse had already been up there with his team, and the only thing I was asking as guys were coming down is I'm just saying, hey, have you seen my son? Have you seen my son, Jesse? Is, is he up there? Yeah, I think he's up there. He's coming down, and everybody would come down the mountain. Have, have you seen Jesse? And yeah, I think he's back here a little bit, and pretty soon I could hear his voice, and I couldn't make it out, and then I saw him, And I feel a little bit like the dad with the prodigal. And Jesse was far from a prodigal. That's not what I'm saying. 
Jesse, in many respects, was farther ahead of in, in emotionally than I was. But it was my son. And we caught each other there, and man, I had a moment. I had my meltdown right there. It was just, this is my son. And I didn't care what he had accomplished. I didn't care what his title was. I didn't care anything. We're just about 14,000 feet up. None of that mattered. This was just my son, and so much melted away at that point in time. After I composed myself, he took his team down, and I went with mine up to the summit, and I found my little bit of real estate up there, and I, so I sat down, and we all just have this ask of, what are we going to ask God for? And I said, God, what do you have to say to me? I'm here. And he basically, this is it. I thought there was going to be something huge in the sense of my new calling for 60 or whatever. And he just said to me, very still as I sat there, he just said, I've just been waiting for you. He just said in the same way you wanted to see your son a moment ago. I just wanted to be with you. Dude. Wow. So that was a big shock. That was my mountain experience. A couple months later, I got to be a part of the Real Jesus weekend. And ever since then, my wife and I have been privileged to be able to stand up and to do what they call the proxy apology. So for those who have experienced abuse in their life, we kind of take on the sins of the world and we apologize in proxy for any man, any woman who has abused those who were in the room. It's a pretty weighty situation. It really takes a lot out of us. But after we went through that, we became a little bit convicted of just some things that we also uh, felt like, man, we, we didn't ever consider ourselves abusive parents, but there were some things we needed to clean up. And each of us went back and we talked to our kids. And I went back and talked to all of mine. And, and essentially what I was apologizing for was uh, just my justified frustrations, always just being a little bit pissy. You know, on the surface around everybody else, I'm smiling Kirby. Life is good. Nobody's ever really seen me angry. But I was just pissy. Just, and it was justified. Because doggone, this happened here and it just got in the way or something like that. And so at times they'd have to be walking on eggs. And I'd say, no, it's not about you guys, but nobody should have to endure that kind of stuff. And so being controlling and all that kind of thing, we cleared the air. Third experience was back in May, about a year and a half ago, when uh, Stephen Posey was here. Talked about his powerful story of restoration. And he made this statement, he said, everybody should have someone who knows your story, your struggles, and your secrets. And doggone if he didn't bust me up one side and down the other. Now Stephen's like a son to me. And I've coached him in some areas. And I knew that language. I've used that language. I've told other guys that. But I had to face it that day. I had still nobody. Even after all this, guys, I didn't. And it wasn't because I didn't have friends. It was because I just kept choosing to do, to keep it to myself, to do what I'd always done. 
And I didn't have a good reason anymore, and I knew that I was going to have to take a step forward because the Holy Spirit was prompting me, and I couldn't resist it anymore. So I took some steps to lean into some greater freedom that I knew was available for me. So to deal with some of these struggles, to deal with another layer, I rented a friend once again, and that's when I met my friend, Dr. Kevin Neiman. And uh, can we give it up for Dr. Neiman today? I know that... You hear his name a lot around here. He's been a great blessing to all, to so many of you personally. Uh, he will neither confirm nor deny that, uh, of course, but just been a great blessing to, to our church. And when I shared my story with him, he said, so when did you grieve your dad? And I mumbled something about, ah, oh, about 13 years ago, and I started telling him about it, and then I choked up. He said, wait a minute, what, what's going on? And he, re- he pointed out to me that I really hadn't grieved my dad. And again, it was, doggone it. Are you kidding me? This is 40 years later. I got to go through this some more? And he just assured me, he just said, a lot of times this healing just has to take place in layers. And so we began to uncover the roots of a lot of my struggles. And much of those things I just knew to be the norm. I didn't know any different. And I had some dad wounds that I hadn't faced. And I figured out, or I didn't figure out, he helped me to understand that so many of us, most of us perhaps, pick up a lie somewhere early on in our, in our childhood. And it becomes reinforced over the years. And as I considered what that lie might have been for me, it had to do with approval. That my lie sounded like this, that approval is conditional. And I will always have to be earning it. I don't know where it came from, and really I don't care. I know it was there, and now I'm just learning the tools and the language to be able to deal with that. But I do know it's voices. It comes in the voice of, you got to do it right. Don't disappoint. Don't screw it up. Make others proud. Don't bring shame to your family. Others are going to think less of you if they know your weaknesses and your flaws. You're a screw-up. You're a phony. Don't let other people find out. You don't really deserve good things. I hate being misunderstood. I hate when it's, you know, my fault. I hate when something happens that makes it look like I made a mistake. And it was performance and doing and striving. And it was all shame-based. You know, guilt is one thing when we feel guilty about something that we have done wrong. It's a chance for us to clear that up, to repent, to gain restoration. Shame is just believing that you are bad, not that you have done something bad. It's horrible. And the way that that would show out in me is through perfectionism and and control. Woke up in the middle of the night, I was still dealing with some of this, thinking I just admitted to Dr. Neiman sitting here, I said, man, that performance was still kicking in today. I was thinking about it. He challenged me and I didn't do it. He told me to roll up my pant leg here like this and not admit it. So I failed that test. That's why I got to go back and see him in a month or so. There's still still more layers here. I wouldn't be able to talk if I had something like that. So we're working through it. But striving for excellence is one thing. Perfectionist is, perfectionism is really just avoiding the perception of being flawed. And I've had a hard time with that. I, I have tremendous grace for others. You come to me, you deal with this stuff, 
I'll help you. I can help you understand the grace of God and you'll feel better about it. You'll be able to move through it. But I'm horrible about that with myself. And I have to have it all together. At least I used to. I'm getting better at it. But it used to show up to my wife, to my kids through control. I wanted them also to have it all together. And it wasn't so much that I wanted the best for them. I was just concerned about how it was going to reflect on me. That's just so sad. It makes me sad to say that right now. But I'm just owning it. I'm just telling you because I don't want that anymore. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life working to undo the unnecessary control that I've had over my wife all these years. I, I've just, I'm done with that. But I was controlling of my family and all the other areas of my life because of the accident. It, my life blew up. I didn't have any say in what happened. I didn't have a choice. And I've been trying to prevent surprises ever since then. I'm always over-preparing, trying to think about the worst. How can I avoid that stuff? And there's no end to it. And then I realized that I was angry at the same time. So in addition to losing my dad and the resulting responsibility that was placed on me that no 18-year-old should really have to have, then I realized last year how angry I was with him at some things that I'd never had a chance to address with him, some family secrets. When I was a teenager, a couple of years before he died, I was extremely disappointed by some of my dad's shortcomings. And these were just some things that kind of burst my bubble as a son, things that he wasn't aware that I knew. And honestly, I never shared these things until this last year with anybody. And then he died a couple years later, and even though that he had accepted Christ in that time and was moving forward in his life, I still had unresolved anger towards him. So Dr. Neiman suggested that I go talk with my mom in Colorado, which I did here over a year ago, and it was tremendously healing for both of us. She hadn't talked about some of these things either. Then he asked where my dad was buried. I said, about eight hours north, and my hometown of Atlantic, and I said, why? He said, you need to go have a talk with your dad, graveside. I just hung my head. I just said, oh, shoot. <laughs> and you're right, full disclosure, it wasn't that clean. <laughs> it really wasn't very pastoral. But it was extremely appropriate, and I'm standing by it. It rocked me. What the heck have I got to do now? About a year ago, Labor Day weekend, I made the trip. I pulled out my little folding chair out of the car, and I sat down in front of the gravestone and said, Dad, we got to have a talk. And we talked a long time, and I talked to him. Talked to him as an 18-year-old. Things that I was disappointed about, and we just needed to get that taken care of. But then I shifted the conversation after that, and I talked to him as a 61-year-old. And I realized I was talking to a 40-year-old, because that's how old he was. And I'd learned some things that my dad had never learned in life. I understood what 40-year-olds were like. And I was able to see it and have much greater compassion on my dad, and I forgave him that day. I 
realized that he was just as flawed as all of us, and he was just doing the best that he knew as well. His latter years were marked by growing in Christ. How in the heck can I not forgive him when I've been forgiven of everything? There's no way. But I still had some of that anger that I was dealing with that was muscle memory, and I had to chip away at that. And I was given the book called Unoffendable. If you guys are writing anything down today, write down that book, Unoffendable. It's my book for 2018, written by Brant Hansen. I've never laughed out loud more by reading a book than in this book, but it rocked me. It was all about anger. I give you a clue. Chapter two was called, Everyone's an Idiot Except Me. Can I get any idiots in here today? You got that? Dude, that was me. I could do the exact same thing the next day, but I was justified in doing what the idiot did yesterday because I know my situation. It busted me up one side down the other where this anger was coming from, especially when it comes down to righteous anger. Here's what I found out about righteous anger, guys. We all like to think that it's righteous. There isn't any one of us in here who is capable of righteous anger. There's only one. And that is a paradigm buster right there. And I know you're going to be chewing on that all day long, so you got to go buy the book and figure it out. I'm not going to argue with you about it, but I'm telling you, it's exhausting to be angry. And I don't have any stones in my pocket anymore. I'm done with that. I may still flare up and get angry, but it didn't last very long because it's just, it's, it's, not, it's not right. So that's my story, my struggles and secrets. We all got them. It's just hitting the high points here, guys, those seven summits we were talking about today. But I can tell you this, there won't be any freedom for any of us or from the shame that goes along with it until we fully surrender our lives to Christ and until we find some trusted friends to go this journey with us. And it's not just a one-time experience. I find this is a tension that I have to manage. I wish it was a one and done. That'd be great. It'd be great to say this was my real Jesus moment. This is my real Jesus journey. In addition to a counselor who has become a good friend of mine, I've surrounded myself. I've reached out to a number of other guys who have helped me to break the power of isolation. Dave Jewett, good friend of mine over here, just this last year we've grown together. I call him Sensei, he's my coach. Pastor Dean Wilson, become a good friend. Pastor Greg Scott, a couple of mountain men buddies, Jack Beersdorfer sitting right down here, Keith Wooliver. These are guys that I have lunch with regularly, coffee with regularly. And I just got to just own my stuff before them, and it's mutual. They do with me as much as they desire. Of course, my family, my wife, and now all of you guys here today. So I'm working more on being than doing. I'm trusting God more with being imperfect, with struggle, uncertainty. I'm trying to focus on what's real and true and not on, you know, the untrustworthy feelings, and I'm learning how to be a son of the Most High God who loves me, who's chosen me, who's approved of me, and is never going to leave me and never forsake me. 
So the things that I would recommend to you guys that I've done is to join a Real Jesus small group if you haven't. Prioritize your time with God in solitude each day and some time for reflection to become aware of who you are, what you feel. Have some daily confessions and affirmations to renew your mind and find some trusted friends that you can get together with regularly. And you may just have to start by just getting together. It may not go deep right away. You just got to show up. Just have coffee and have lunch, but take the step. So my question with you today is, what's your next move today, guys? Maybe there's something out of here that you've been nudged as well, and you need to take a step. You definitely need to go buy that book, Unoffendable. But I can tell you this, that it's not too late. You're not too old, but what are you going to do and when? Life is unpredictable, and control is an illusion, and life is tough, especially even when you know God and are close to him. But it, it is nothing like if you don't know who Jesus is. And that's my prayer for every one of you. If you don't know him, I'm encouraging you guys today, you will come to the end of yourself at some point in time. And it's better for you to have made that commitment to surrender your life to Jesus and to find that group of Christian brothers who can stand with you If you came with a friend today, you can talk with them about that. In a moment, you'll have a chance to do just that. I want to close out on a good note, though, today. It's kind of heavy stuff, but losing my dad and having uh, to work through uh, some of these dad wounds have been painful, but it's helped me. It's helped me. I wouldn't have chosen it, but God has been with me through this. And amazingly enough, I realized a couple of years ago that just about... The majority of the guys who come to me for coaching on their own either don't have a dad or they don't have a good relationship with their dad. My devotional reading a couple of days ago from Pete Scazzaro's Day by Day was about the life of Joseph and how by leaning into his pain from his brother's treachery and forgiving them paved the way for great blessing in his life and with other people. And I want to just read this closing comment out of devotion and prayer to you. The question was for the day was, what pains in your life are waiting to be acknowledged and grieved? The prayer was this, Lord, lead me through the process of grieving and healing that I might offer genuine kindness and forgiveness to those who have not been kind to me. Help me like Joseph to join with you to become a blessing to many people. In Jesus' name, amen. That's my prayer, guys. I trust that it's yours. I hope so. Thank you, my friends, for letting me share a little bit, for listening to my story, my struggles, my secrets today. And I hope it's been encouraging to you. I hope that you'll take some steps to also find the freedom that's available to you in Jesus. And I hope that you continue to be greater blessings to other people. Thank you so much. I love all of you.